Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have David Batstone here with me from San Francisco. Welcome to my podcast, Dave. And it's really great that our paths have uh, crossed. So David uh, Bastion is a Silicon Valley venture capitalist with a mission to eradicate human trafficking and the global slave trade. Uh, and at the same time, he's what you might call a social justice warrior. So David is the, is the founder and managing director of Just Business, a social impact investment firm. And he's also the founder of Not For Sale, which builds uh, viable and successful companies and returns the profits back to the community. So Dave, you are often described as uh, one of America's leading authorities on ethics in the business world, uh, both in academia and the popular press, I've read. So it's a little bit like being a, uh, like a hero, I was thinking, you know, trying to put an end to modern day slavery and to help people without uh, voice. Uh, and I think actually this world needs heroes, but maybe we also need to redefine what a hero is today and what could it be? Well, it's really important to be driven by your passion and um, your core beliefs. And that for me, the reason that that's very important is that I never feel that I am, you know, sacrificing my time. I'm doing, you know, oh my God, I'm doing so much for the world. Really, I just am um, following my own uh, sense of a purpose. And that's so fulfilling. I realized um, at one point when I was a more conventional Silicon Valley entrepreneur um, and venture capitalist that, you know, the world doesn't need the next version, whatever my 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 phone is or whatever my, you know, my, my uh, home stereo unit it might be, but it really does need to solve problems. And I decided that I would use the network and experience whatever intelligence I had to solve those problems. And uh, not for sale, uh, there you work with entrepreneurs and with investors to create forward-thinking companies that really can return the dignity to people and to planet. So what is the unique model for developing successful ent enterprises that create an opportunity for, for everyone, really? It's funny how it didn't start that way. It mm. it. When I first discovered uh, human trafficking, and it was uh, in a local restaurant in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, I, I took a year leave of absence to investigate how this could happen, how could people be bought and sold you know, in the 21st century. Or The first inclination was, okay, I need to do something about it. So what do you do? You start a charity. That's what everybody does when they want to address a social or environmental problem. That's why we have so many NGOs and nonprofits around the world. Mm. Uh, so Not For Sale initially was a very conventional charity in the respect that we would go to uh, either government or a rotary club or church, religious communities and, and ask for money. And then we'd spend it and we'd ask for more money. And it was just uh, uh, a model after about five years. I said, you know, this will never scale. Uh, I spend what I ask for. And then I go back and ask for more because I spent it all. It's, it's no recurring revenue. There's no, so it's not a good business model. Uh, doesn't throw any uh, negativity on the motivation behind people who are in nonprofits or social causes. It's just that I want to see scalable solutions that do not rely on the latest 
grant or donation. So the business model that evolved was, okay, I'm a big believer in talent and network. And I brought together the 50 uh, most successful and brightest people I knew. And that they were, you know, the founder of Twitter, the one of the star baseball players for the uh, American baseball teams, uh, the biggest banker in, in the Southern Hemisphere from Australia. So I brought all of them together and I asked for 48 hours to help me brainstorm what would be a solution to a very specific problem. What would be a business solution for a very specific problem? And the problem was the exploitation of native communities in the Amazon of Peru. So it was both the Amazon forest and also the people who live there. And a lot of their children were being trafficked. They were taken advantage of because the native people didn't have access to rule of law. They couldn't expect someone with a uniform to, to protect them. And they were also very vulnerable because of their economic poverty. So it was a very interesting exercise because I found that the first part of the workshop uh, was very much almost like if you've been in a shopping center and you have a cart that you put your groceries in, and sometimes you get a wheel that's really kind of, I say, whopper jaw doesn't work very well, and it just moves right. It's like you, keep, you try and push it and it just wants to go the other direction. And everybody is moving towards charity because that's the way they think. It's like, oh, we're going to solve the problem for these native people. So... They come up with an idea and I go, okay, who's going to fund that? How's that going to, how are you going to capitalize that? And they go, do you know the Gates Foundation? And I go, no, I don't know the Gates Foundation. And, you know, they're not going to find every solution in the world. So eventually, um, but I did promise them that whatever business idea they came up with, my team would implement it. And that's probably the stupidest promise I ever made because they came up with an idea I knew nothing about. The winning idea, we had like a Shark Tank conclusion to the whole two-day process and uh, 10 teams put together a proposal and we had a panel that chose the winning idea. But the winning idea was to create a beverage company, which uh, I knew nothing about beverage, but to source the ingredients from the rich resources of the Amazon. So matcha, maca, turmeric, all these great uh, medicinal herbs that have been used for centuries for medicinal purposes source them, put them into a beverage, pay a very just fair wage to the people and create economic platforms where they have a, a sense of social power and stability, sell it in U.S. markets, return uh, revenue back to the communities to reinvest in infrastructure, education, and beautiful model on paper. But on Monday morning, I had to create this thing, right? So... I uh, ended up going out and finding the best beverage maker I could find, which you do in Silicon Valley. You don't find the you know social worker who has a lemonade recipe. You go and find someone who has created some of the best beverages in the world. And how do you do that? You promise to pay them a lot of money and opportunity with stock. And then once you get that talent, then you go to potential investors and say, hey, you know, I have the best beverage maker in the world. We're going to create this beverage. Would you invest? And they go, oh, I love the idea. So it's a commercial exercise on behalf of a social cause. And so I like to say the company, it's called Rebel, R-E-B-B-L, uh, Roots, Extract, Bark, Berry, and Leaves. It's an acronym for, mm-hmm. you know, wholeness, but it's also be a rebel, be different. You know, don't drink the same old 
crap that everybody else drinks, Coke or whatever, but like drink healthy for yourself and also for the world. So uh, it was a, it, it's turned out to be an incredible success. It's one of the top health beverages in America. And we return about 1.5 million back to the communities through our revenue sharing. We create jobs and we source now in 33 countries around the world, not just the Amazon, but also like Sri Lanka. And we choose ingredients for the beverage based on the most impact that we can have through the sourcing of that for people and planet, not what the cheapest ingredient would be. So the DNA of the, the mission was put into the company. And even today, it's in the Articles of Incorporation that we have to source according to the ethics of the mission, not according to the demands of uh, uh, the cost of goods. So that gives you a sense of the business model. That was the first of 11 companies now that all are, we, we built and capitalized with that mission in mind. Congratulations to these uh, achievements. I think it's really important, uh, great examples for, for everybody to, to, to see that, that things can be done. And the more they are done through the business engine, so to say, the more sustainable it can become as well. You know, I, I think it's a, it was really important to, to create models. And I, I do remember going in the early days of Not For Sale when we were a charity, I would go to these big apparel companies like Levi's or The Gap or you know, big American uh, apparel companies. And I would try to convince them to um, change the way that they manufacture, you know, in sweatshops and just really create conditions whereby people become vulnerable. And, you know, it's like everyone who works should have dignity and they should be able to have a viable lifestyle and a family life. And so I would go to, and one day, one of these executives in our meeting to stop the meeting said, you know, Dave, you know your problem. And, I said, oh, okay, now it's my problem. And he goes, you're here to trying to persuade us to change the way that we source materials and, and, and manufacture and labor, how we, how we address our labor. But if you had your own company, you could do whatever you want to do. So why are you here begging us? And so in one hand, I was like, oh, I can't believe the gall of that guy. But on the other hand, I was like, yeah, he's right. I need to go out and create models where you can show that you can be profitable, that you can do well for your investors, uh, for the people you employ, but by doing good, by, by creating a business model that keeps at the very center of the company the commitment to the community and to the environment. And so that's been my, my cause, is to do that and show those models are possible. And, and what is the most important thing to get people um, engaged and, and on board? Because, I mean, I know you've, you've connected, uh, as you mentioned, uh, business leaders and celebrities and politicians and also students actually to design strategic solutions for uh, around the 30 million human slaves in the world today, for example. So, so you're trying to do everything you can to do, make the invisible visible and inspire people to be a generation of justice. But I'm thinking, how do you make people deep down understand that there really is something they can do about it. Because to be inspired and to generally support and say, wow, uh, I didn't know that, now I know that. But then to go from there to do something and to really engage, yeah. uh, not only through maybe money, but like engage. Yeah. How do you get people there? You know, it's funny, the, the same that I find in terms of marketing one of my products or services, I find also in, ter uh, in persuasion towards social justice or designing a better world. Uh, the most important thing is to, um, it's not about 
demonstrating to other people that you're a hero or that you're, uh, you know, doing good in the world. It's it's about making them a hero and showing how they can be a hero. And I, I want my customers to know that they can be a hero. I, I want people I talk to. And my, my job as a, you know, hopefully a chief inspirer of, of my companies is to uh, build that bridge. It's not that see, for them to think how great I am. I want to show them how great they are. And that is just like, oh, wow. I mean, I can, I can do something or I can, there is a bridge for me to, to, uh, you know, live my life, my business life in a different way or my, the way I invest or, and I never try and convince or persuade. I want to give the opportunity for compelling. I want people to be compelled towards a vision, not be argued into it. And you find the right people and you kind of just walk away from those who don't get it or they're, they got other centers of inspiration in their life. You just, yeah, just walk on. But until very, very recently, you've um, been a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at the University of uh, San Francisco. When you look back at that time now, what was the most beautiful, important experiences there during that? Well, it was such a beautiful, I think I taught for 25 years at the university. And you're right, I I just recently uh, resigned from there to do other things. And I, what I would love to do is um, use, I guess it's a Socratic method of teaching where you're raising a dilemma and then you're solving it together in the classroom and you don't, you don't even know the answer. And I would walk and say, you know, I've got, I was in China this week and I met with this group and they offered this to me. Now, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you think? And then they've read some theoretical text, right? Some uh, textbook, which I think is important. I think being able to digest theory and, and understand principles are really important. But now you're applying them in the conversation. I said, well, okay, what, what do you think the author would say about this? Now, what do you say about that? Here's my dilemma. And so I would just love that. I mean, class time would just go like that so quick because of the fact that everyone's like thinking intellectually and practically about a, a problem. And so you're learning, and despite the fact you think, oh, I'm in class, but you're, you're actually learning. So, I mean, I think after those, every semester, that, w- that would be the feedback they got. I said, my God, I've never, why isn't all university like this where you're, is organic learning, you know? It's like you're, you're learning in the moment and in the flow of real history and real life. So I'll miss that because um, I got smarter, you know? I Seriously, when you... Whether you're a leader, a teacher, uh, which, of course, is another kind of leader, professor, but you learn most when you let go of your own knowledge and you put your no- you open your knowledge up for malleability, for change, for, you know, it, so little by little, you start becoming more aware of the vulnerabilities and what you assume you know. And so you keep it, you keep, I don't know, I, I, my goal, I always say, I joke with people that I want to be smarter every week, but it's really true. Um, I'm glad I didn't come on this podcast last week because I'm so much smarter this week because so you're getting a better <laughs> version of me. Uh, but I, I really want that for myself, but I want that for the people who work for me. I want them to feel, wow, I'm getting smarter. I'm like learning more. I'm, I'm you know, I'm evolving. Mm-hmm. I think I find personally that the biggest challenge is to, as you say, park what we know to the side for a while and just explore things and observe things and let's hopefully something will, you know, pop up and trust that. Because as soon as you're in this kind of no man's land, kind of you don't know exactly 
what's happening and where you are and what you do exactly know or don't. That's really when normally you drop into something, maybe a new idea or something, but you need to allow that to happen. And people normally, I think, and I also have a tendency to kind of, okay, if nothing has happened yet, then I'll go back to what I knew and I'll continue, right? And if you do that too quickly, then you won't have that kind of experience or revelation of something new, right? Well, you're absolutely right. To me, it's uh, a matter of almost... You know, putting yourself into the position of the person who's speaking, um, say in a classroom situation, so the student says something. I don't like say, no, I don't get that, or I don't think you're right. Or I say, you know, I think that way too sometimes. But then I ask myself this: Do you ask yourself that? So now I'm in their shoes and I'm asking. So I'm I'm, I'm validating what they're saying. Now I'm raising, but but this would be the thing that worries me about that position, you know. And then now there's no. There's no like teacher student. It's like, yeah, now we're together trying to figure this out, right? Mm-hmm. I had a great, uh, I, I wrote a book called Saving the Corporate Soul. And I got to interview all these great um, business leaders around the world about how do they practice their craft as a business leader, but really feel they're doing it in a soulful way. And uh, one of the people I interviewed was the CEO and chairman of a big service company called Service Master. And it cleans hospitals and uh, office buildings and you know it's kind of like a contracted cleaning service but it's simplifying what they do but this CEO chairman he would uh, every year go and do jobs in all parts of the company he would go mop floors at hospitals or he would go you know, mowing lawns at, at, at park recreation parks and the, the reason he did that is because I wanted to continually put myself in the shoes of the people that work for me to understand how they think about what we're doing and I and their challenges and how I would feel inspired if I was doing their job every day. And so um, he had a funny story though. It's humbling too, because a, a friend of the family was walking through the hospital and saw him mopping the floor and said, Bill, is that you? Like, yeah, and he's like mopping. Is everything okay at home? Said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I thought you were chairman. Yeah, I am. But you know, but it's humbling too, right? But, but more importantly, he was, it, it, again, it's the thing of never being too uh, lofty that you, you're you not trying to understand a life from the perspective of the people who you're in, in this adventure with, you know, mm. whether it's a company or a social movement or whatever. What would you say is your uh, real passion, which comes from this Latin word, you know, patire, to suffer? So something that you are so into and so feel it's so important to you that you're also willing to suffer for it if needed. Yeah. I think it's an artistic passion. And um, artists would talk about, you know, the endless hours and and you could say the the pathos they would put into something, Mm -hmm. um, even if it, you know, is at the cost of their social life or at their uh, economic life. And so I would say for me, I, I think of what I do as art, artistic or my creative expression is in designing uh, solutions, designing companies. And it is almost like um, I look at there's different forms of intelligence. There's people who are just like, you know, have incredible forms of intelligence around mathematical figures or around engineering. Or there's another form of intelligence that I call pattern recognition that everyone else just sees a kind of miasma. They see just chaos and there's a recognition. Of, no, there's a I can see that's what's ha- that can happen. You just got to create the connect the dots and create a pattern. You see the pattern before it actually becomes visible. Mm-hmm. It's not that you're creating the pattern; it's there. It's just other people don't necessarily see it. 
And I feel that's what I'm passionate about is that creative moment or creative process of taking those patterns and make them reality. So right now I'm working on three companies in renewable energy. Uh, I think it's just ridiculous that we're running vehicles on petroleum that puts carbon up in the atmosphere and you know is has us moving quickly towards a very apocalyptic environmental future. And so uh, it's just obvious to me that we should be using, we should decarbonize our transport and our industry, that we don't need to uh, use fossil fuels to do that. And so I have three companies that I'm deeply involved in as an investor and as an operator, and I kind of do all three, but because it's so inspiring, I, I guess that's what motivates me. It's not, it's not the money. The money is just a fuel, you know, I get another kind of renewable energy. It's just the fuel that allows me to do the things that I do. But I'm not very materialistic in terms of I don't need much. Um, I don't own a car. And for the last year and a half, I didn't even own a house, which is very funny. So I'm not driven by that, but I'm driven by the pathos of creating something that designs the world in a better way. What, what would you say are like the long-term solutions for business? Um, because I'm always thinking about, you know, what are, if we would start from scratch with something and you right. are already building new companies and so on. But I'm saying, you know, if, if in this, if everything you know and everything we all together, people in the business world uh, know to be the right way to do things in order to deliver both human and economic value in combination. So if we put together all those building blocks. Um, each company is genuine, of course, and has its own soul in a way. But still, there are some base rules and base building blocks that we can maybe unite around. What, what would you say are those kind of, you know, common denominators? Uh, I, I really am a, I'm a, I'm a very, I call myself a, a pragmatic idealist. So I have, a, I have these ideals of where I want us to head, where I think as a human family, we need to head, but I'm also very pragmatic. And I find that if I can align an economic interest with a better designed world, better for people and better for planet, then I need to find those business solutions where those two come together. Um, so I oftentimes, people propose to me great ideas that would probably make a lot of money. And I don't disparage that for someone else, but it's not for me. It's not my passion and I don't do things that aren't my passion. But uh, I also meet great ideas about how we could create a great social program or an environmental program, but there's no business model behind it. So I don't do those either. So it's where the two come together, whether they, they're crossroads of, of, of both the uh, viability and scalability that economics bring together with the vision and the morality and the ethics behind that world that can be created. Now, we live at a very unique time around climate change where those two things have really come together. Major companies are calling me about how, how can I get, how can I move away from fossil fuel? How can, you know, even, even companies that have made their fortune on petroleum, you know, I could be cynical and say, okay, you just see that the world's now moving towards uh, re renewable fuels, whether it's, uh, you know, solar, wind, hydrogen. I don't care because there's an alignment now. And, uh, But, but the, I also find, though, and this might seem like a contradiction to what I just said, 
that I need to be very clear about structuring whatever company I have according to those values. Because once you get in the process and you're in the boardroom, money has a funny way of coloring everyone's you know, mission and values, what they started with. And you know, even at Rebel, it was like, well, do we really need to source the ingredients? To, you know, why don't we just get, we get a cheaper vanilla over in, you know, another country? And I go, oh. so you need to like, you know, put it into the DNA. You have to put it in the contract. And, you know, it's, it's much easier for me to say, nah, it's too, I see where you're coming from, but it does say in our rules of, of incorporation that we have to do this. So people need rules, inspiration, becomes concretized in rules and discipline that order everyday behavior. And then you come back to the values and to the ideals to get your bearings. But, you know, you don't want to, I guess it's a, it's a combination of discipline and imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And and then the more clear you are uh, in also communicating from the very beginning about these values and all of that, it's not fluffy stuff. It's rather uh, you're going to attract the right people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like a family. So, oh, I believe in family, but we never eat meals together. And so like, I was always say to my kids, okay, we're always there for meals. They go, oh, come on, I want to go out and watch TV now, or I want to go do something. I go, you know, a meal is more than the food. A meal is something else, right? So it's a discipline that you're, and, and it reinforces. My kids now as adults, they go, they laugh and they say, dad, you know, a meal is more than just the food. Yeah. <laughs> Because that was a value that we instilled, but it's a, a disciplined behavior that reflects the values that we wanted to communicate. And companies need to do that. And so that's what leaders do is they they find the rules that make sense to people because they reflect the values and mission of what you're about as a company. And uh, I'm just curious, what, what are the like transformational points in your life that have influenced you the most so far? Uh, well, there's, there's quite a few. You know, one of the major ones was encountering human trafficking in my own backyard in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was strange. I I wonder about that sometimes because it was a public restaurant and it wasn't like it wasn't I was involved in it. It was just I was a customer that went to this restaurant. But probably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people went to that restaurant. But why was it that I just so like it was to me? It was almost like you could put a religious a calling or a spiritual calling. I think about this philosophically quite a bit. Most people say, you know, what's the meaning of my life or what's my purpose here? Or like, why are we here? They're very philosophical questions. And I think it's the wrong question. I've come to that conclusion. I think the right question is life asks questions of us. We don't ask questions of life. And things that happen to us, it's, it's like, how are you going to respond to the fact that 500 young girls from India got put into this restaurant in San Francisco and and we're being forced to work there and they're, you know, sexually abused. And what do you do with that? Walking away and doing nothing? I'm making a response. I'm, life has asked me a question. And then my life is now being shaped by those decisions I make. And so everyone has things come into their life. So I'm very attuned to what life brings me, I guess. I feel like not in some kind of, uh, you know, uh, some uh, a God is up in the heavens putting things in front of me. I don't think that way, but I do think that the constellation of, events that happen in my life, they, they ask a question and the way that I respond to them, that's my character. Right now, if you would assume that you have uh, all kinds of doors open to you and all kind of kinds of resources available, what would you rush to innovate or, or, or change? I mean, you're already doing a lot, but if everything would be possible, literally. I think some people get paralyzed by choices because there's so many options and the more you do, the more options you have. You've heard the expression, you need to say no a lot more than you say yes. Uh, 
leaders come to the place where they learn what to say yes to and all the things they need to say no to. Um, I think it also includes the more public you get, the more, um, at least I, people's perception that you're successful. There's even more people who want to, you know, they want money from you as an investment. They want you to work with them on something. They, you're just constantly being asked and you learn to say no a lot. For someone who's driven by inspiration and passion and social connection, that's like a very hard discipline, right? Because the, you have to keep coming back to, okay, my choices are towards what I want to achieve that will get me further towards my goals are to get these three things done. And I need to really devote myself to that. And anything else is a distraction from that. And so uh, that, I think, was a lifelong and continuing journey considering there's a lot of you know leaders listening to, to this podcast, I'm thinking, is there like one piece of advice you would like to um, share with them? A lot of leaders don't realize the contribution that they could make to a, a broader world outside of their, say, industry or outside of their uh, career. I try to challenge other leaders to think about your life as a, a vocation and not as a career. Career is all the things you put on your resume or on your LinkedIn profile, uh, things that you've done. A vocation is more about where your resource, your network, who you are, what you've done meets the needs of the world. And I, I, I really want to inspire other leaders to see that they have a vocation, that they have this opportunity, not just obligation, but more an opportunity to reimagine the, the, the world, because the world that we live in, let's be honest, it's messed up. You know, the, the distribution of wealth, the, you know, as a venture capitalist, that might sound like a funny thing to say, but the distribution of wealth is a big problem in the world. And, um, you know, one of my goals with Just Business, my firm, is that I open up uh, my uh, funds to small investors, you know, a young African-American social worker, she could put $1,000 into my fund. And she has the same preferential rights for the fund as someone who puts in a million dollars. And this is, I call it democratizing capital. So uh, there's an example of having a vocation and not just a career. And so no matter what industry you're in or what particular practice is, how would you think about reinventing that in a way that's a vocation, that's a calling towards uh, being a part of a community that sorely needs leadership right now? If you were to give uh, advice to yourself, let's say 15, 20 years ago or so, what would that be? More belief in your intuition. You know, I think all of us look back, we said, gee, you know, I thought this a long time ago. I wish I had made choices in my life based on my intuition. And I, did. I know it's really hard because you're not getting reinforcement for the fact that, you know, like I was, I started Just Business 20 years ago. And people are like, what do you mean? Like, are you a charity? Go, no, I'm an investment company. But I believe that we can invest, and I. But I just didn't have the same confidence that where the that I saw the wave coming or I saw the pattern, but I just didn't have enough belief in it. And so, you know, sometimes you can be self delusional. So it's important to be have friends and and you know keep yourself accountable and and ask yourself questions. But most cases, and I think this particularly for um, uh, as a professor, I noticed this with young women, they didn't believe in their intuition enough because they've been always told that they're seeing the world wrong or this is the way the world works. Or I think it's really important to first and foremost, believe in yourself. And even 20 years ago, I didn't believe in myself to the extent I should have. How do you feel now about that? 
when do we believe in ourselves oh. enough? <laughs> yeah, maybe I have too much belief in myself because uh, I like throw myself doing three companies at the same time, you know, as a executive and a, a main investor. But I, uh, yeah, I have no lack of, of confidence in myself that I'll go into a meeting and if someone doesn't want to, as I say, I don't try to persuade them. Mm-hmm. I just say, I just feel okay. It's not right for them. They don't see it. Rather than saying, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I didn't, maybe I have the wrong idea. Or, yeah. So maybe I have too much confidence that, you know, they just don't get it because it's true. It's going to happen. Like we are going to live in a world where hydrogen and uh, electric non-fossil fuel cars are industry will not be run on fossil fuel. We're moving that. And so I'm just believing it's going to happen. It's just waiting for everybody to catch up. And I didn't have that same confidence 20 years ago. And I'm thinking about, um, you know, young people who are maybe moving into, or I don't know, choosing some, some education now, or so 20, 25 years of age or something. What kind of advice would you give them right now? And what do you see among uh, among young people right now? I always just tell my students, um, well, two things. Uh, this, like, this would be a thread in every class. Uh, one is that I know many of you obsess about what course of study. Should I study engineering or accounting or nursing? Or I said, you know, it doesn't matter. Just follow your, your curiosity. You know, follow your curiosity and passion and then it matters that you study intently but don't worry about what you study but how you study and I still feel that today I mean I have my PhD in uh, religious studies theology um, and here I am a venture capitalist and I'm like starting companies and you know it's just um, it, it's because I just every I just pursue whatever I was curious at a given point in time you never generate wealth for yourself by your own labor you only make money while you sleep, all right? So find ways, and this is why I'm trying to democratize access to investment. I want to find ways for people to be able to uh, take advantage of investment in their life, is that whatever they've earned, that they also can put some away, and then it starts working on their behalf. So you wake up in the morning and you're wealthier than you were the day before. Now, it sounds kind of contradictory for, for me, concerned about global poverty and slavery to make sure I want everyone to be wealthy. Everyone who works for me, I want them to be learn how to be smarter and learn how to be wealthier. But I want that wealth to be done within the context of a lifestyle that is committed to the values that they care about. But we also, you know, this is why I guess I'm a, I call myself a punk capitalist or, you know, uh, uh, you know a very kind of... Yes, I think the the rules of capitalism, I think the rules of economics, you need to know them, you need to study them, you need to be able to practice them. But then for what purpose and what role will it have in your life? And I think you need to bring the two together to have wisdom to be successful. And I'm just curious about the theology. How come yeah. at that point? How come well, you chose that? I think a lot of it had to do with uh, the fact that I was raised a very religious uh, community uh, growing up, evangelical Christian mm-hmm. in America, like in the middle, of the, like the buckle of the Bible Belt, that kind of area of the, of the country. And so I think part of it was to um, intellectualize, uh, to, to figure out a, a way out of it, because it's so strong, the emotional, all my family members were part of the evangelical church. And so to make a decision that you're going to go another direction in your life required some intellectual understanding of the history of this. What does it mean? What, you know, philosophically, what is meaning about? So I, I, I again, I just, for personal, like I think some people study psychology. 
in order to figure themselves out. I studied theology to figure myself out. And um, then I started teaching, actually, at the University of San Francisco. Uh, when I first started teaching, I taught, I taught religious studies and theology uh, and, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and is, you know, all the great religions and spiritual practices. But I was also on the side, I was a venture capitalist. So one day my dean of my university came to me and said, look, you're a successful venture capitalist. Why are you teaching uh, theology here? Why don't you teach business? And I go, I could. He goes, yeah, well, we're a Jesuit school that believes in values. So why don't you talk about doing business with value? I go, okay, I'll do that. So that's why that's how I ended up writing book, Saving the Corporate Soul, is bringing those two worlds together. It's a good piece of advice he gave you. He did. No, he really did. I'm glad he recognized that. And because I was, you know, I, I just kept the two the two worlds very separate, you know, but then he, it pushed me to bring my, my academic life, intellectual life into my business world. And, and so now today, um, would, would you describe yourself as religious in, in, in a classical sense or more like, you know, believing in certain universal principles? Yeah, I'd say I, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in a spiritual path. And uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't participate in organized religion. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I'm not anti. Someone tells me they go to the, the ashram every week or the church or synagogue. I don't have any animus of it. Well, you, why are you doing that? You know, to me, it's like, I think, I think religion is a vehicle towards transcendence. I think, you know, it, you take the bus, you take the car, you take the plane. None of the established vehicles really work for me. Even raising my kids, I took them instead of being, Like, I know a lot of parents maybe had my background and say, okay, we're not going to have any religion in our household. I actually went the other direction. I said, take them everywhere. I, could, I took them on weekends to Buddhist monasteries and I took them to, I mean, they, they laugh at all the experiences they had. And I wanted them to see the complexity of, of human search for meaning and purpose and, and you know, sense of spirituality. So uh, I still am that way today. I'm just super curious about I guess uh, I'll put it this way. I'm more of a seeker than a believer. I'm not looking to join some group, but <laughs> but I'm a seeker. I, I really you know seek truth and wherever it takes me. What do you think is the most important thing right now uh, for companies to focus on? Right? You know, there's a whole trend movement in in global finance and in in corporate life. And I guess we call it ESG. Every company needs to understand their business needs to meet the needs of the community where it operates. And that's no longer a luxury or an ethic. It's, it, it's an ethos. It's just the, and so I think companies need to think 10 years ahead. And, and if they don't, it's not that I'm going to think they're immoral. I just think they're going to be bankrupt. And so uh, how do you fit into a world of scarce resources? How do you fit into a world of... Uh, excluding two thirds of humanity from the business model you have, so I think those are those are demands now on a company, not a luxury. And and so my final question to you, Dave, is uh, is this one: What do you think the world needs most at this time? More people have opportunities to have a say in their destiny, and they more education. They need uh, more access to money or capital, uh, more access to joining an economy. Um, It's all about creating more opportunity within the framework of how that builds a better future for their part of the world. 
right now, we, we, we very much live in a, still a feudal capitalist world controlled by a very small group of people. And that's not good for the world. It's not good for the planet. And so I mean true democracy, not elections, but it, democratizing means creating access. And I feel like there's very little access to um, social and economic power today. So the world needs that. But also the world needs more cooperation. And I, I really find, I, on a very hopeful note, right now I just find that individual companies understand that they're stronger when they can create collaborations and joint ventures and work together. And so uh, uh, leaders need to be able to practice that because they'll be more successful. But if you're really insular and you're only concerned about you know holding on to what market share you have, you're going to be a loser because you know it, it's a world where collaboration wins right now. How was it to be on the on the podcast for you? Oh, you know, it's really um, it felt like a conversation. It didn't feel like an interview, and I feel like it. Uh, it's because of things that you're interested in exploring in the podcast are more than just simply business leadership, but they're almost about this pathway or journey we call a spiritual journey. You're like, it's about the individual, it's about the society, it's about uh, in enterprise, but how do we reinvent ourselves? How do we reinvent the world? And I really find that inspiring too. So thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for sharing. To um, find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. And uh, also remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing uh, David. And also please rate and review this podcast if you uh, enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, uh, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, David. Thank you for having me on. <laughs>